good morning. Let's find our place and stand together as we worship the Lord through song this morning. Emphasizing Christ as the King. Crown Him with many crowns. Let's stand together as we praise the Lord this morning. Good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church of Wixom. Thank you for joining us for worship today. Here are a few upcoming events to help you stay connected. We will have a men's worship breakfast on Tuesday, January 30th from 6 to 7.30 a.m. Don't miss this great time of fellowship as we enjoy an awesome breakfast together. Musical worship, prayer, and a special guest speaker bringing an engaging lesson of what it means to be a husband, father, and disciple maker. Don't miss this powerful morning designed to help you grow spiritually. The first session of E3 Starting Points class is in two weeks on January 28th at 9.45 a.m. in room 402. The Starting Points class is designed to engage attenders in church life by answering these five key questions about FBC. If you have never attended Starting Points class, this is the perfect opportunity to learn more about FBC and get connected. There will be a ladies' activity on January 20th at 7 p.m. Ladies will meet at the Connect Boutique on Wixom Road and will enjoy a fun evening of shopping, food, and games. If you have any questions, please see Amber Tebow after the morning worship gathering. Community groups continue tonight at 6 p.m. If you are not yet connected with a Sunday p.m. community group, please visit fbcwixom.org forward slash community groups for more information. Community groups meet in homes most Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. There will be a lunch in the cafe today at noon for everyone who is new to FBCW. If you are new to FBCW and have never been to a New Here lunch, please plan to join us in the cafe today, right after morning worship. 
In just a few minutes, we will be dismissing children four years through the third grade out the back of the auditorium to our junior church ministry. While there, they will enjoy a great time as they sing songs, play games, and hear a message from God's Word prepared just for them. The ministry at First Baptist Church is funded entirely by the volunteer gifts of God's people. This is an important part of our worship as we unite together in a tangible way to advance the priorities of Jesus in our community and beyond. If you would like to participate in worship by giving, please utilize the giving box at the back of the auditorium. Request a weekly gift be sent directly from your bank to the church office, or you can give online at fbcwixom.org and click at the giving tab at the top of the page. Thank you for partnering together with the rest of the church to advance the cause of Christ. If this is your first time at FBC, we would love to connect with you. If you'd like more info about FBC, prayer, or to learn how you can get involved, you can fill out a connection card online at fbcwixom.org forward slash connect. Also, make sure to stop by the Welcome Center for a special gift on your way out after the service. Once again, thank you for joining us for worship today. Now we invite you to worship the Lord through song as we prepare to hear from God's Word this morning. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I commend you for your heartiness and bravery in being out on this chilly Sunday morning. Glad to have you together today for worship. I want to mention just a couple of additional items from the announcements. You heard men about the special men's breakfast on January 30th at 6 a.m. Our guest speaker will be A.J. Riley from Valor Men's Ministries. I had the opportunity to meet A.J. and hear him speak a couple of months ago. You will not be disappointed. It's really going to be a great message that he'll bring that morning We'll have some worship together, some time of prayer, and a great breakfast. There's a sign-up sheet on the back uh, table right outside the double doors in the back next to the column. Please sign up so that we can prepare enough food for breakfast on that day. I also want to mention that our church uses an online service for our directory. Uh, some uh, have recently asked, hey, can I get access to the directory? I'd like to get a hold of some people that I've made friends with at church. It's all online. We try to be very careful about protecting the information of our people. And so that is only accessible to people who are on the directory. You have to share your information in order to have access to everybody else's information. And you do that by emailing Johnny Martin and he sets you up with an account. He'll send you an invitation. Then you'll set up your account, put your information in, then you'll have access to the rest of the church directory. If you're already on that, that's called Breeze. Church Breeze is the software that we use. If you're already on that and you haven't recently updated your information, we would appreciate it if you would. It's really the only way we have for church members to update their contact information for one another. And remember, it's private to just our, our church people, and so that information is safe. Your phone numbers, whichever ones you would like to share, your address, if you're willing to share that, that would help us make sure that we can contact you when necessary. There's a sheet of paper that fits in the notebooks. It's out on the back table or at the table in the back of the auditorium. Please pick one of these up if you have questions about Breeze. This should answer your questions, and otherwise you can see Johnny Martin if you have further uh, information that you need. Many of you um, from a while back would remember the name Marion Plouts. Marion is a long-time member of First Baptist Church. She's been 
uh, battling health challenges and has now, uh, she's in the hospital, has spreading cancer. And so um, we really need to lift up Marion in our prayers and um, think on her and try to encourage her if you have the opportunity to do so. Uh, Marion thinks about us quite a bit and prays for our church and supports our church and we want to return that favor during this moment of need in her life. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin the service today. Father, we're grateful for your blessings. Thank you for providing safety to us as we came in this morning. Thank you for electricity and for heat and for comfortable space in which we can fellowship today. Thank you for the beautiful music that we enjoy on a weekly basis as we think about crowning Jesus with many crowns. What a beautiful sight that will be someday as the saints gather around his throne for worship. Lord, we are grateful that we have a Savior and we're grateful that we can worship him together today. Lord, we do pray that you'd be with Marion. Thank you for her. Thank you for the many long-term faithful members of this church who continue to give and pray and serve and love this church. And we pray that you'd help us to return that to Marion now as we seek to pray for her. And we ask that you'd intervene in her life, give her comfort and peace and healing, help her to know she's loved and cared for here. Please help us to glorify you in all we do and say today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, continue to worship through song as we sing out a great hymn, Our Great Savior. Jesus, what a threat for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Thank you. 
song from Samuel called Christ the True and Better. And it takes us through the passages in the Old Testament that prophesy of the coming Messiah. And it tells how that Adam and David and Abraham, all these people were great people and they did great things, but none of them comes close to what Christ was going to fulfill. Amen. And so Samuel is going to lead us in this song, Christ the True and Better. We're going to learn it together. Christ the true and better Adam, Son of God and Son of Man, who intended in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, we reverse the coast. Glory is the glory 
great singing and great truth, you can be seated. Oh, my. 
Amen. Thank you, guys. That is the theme of today's message, that Jesus is the hope of the nations, the desired one, the one that the prophets were speaking of when they said that God's going to solve this. Someday, God is going to send the Messiah to solve the sin problem. Today, I want to invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 4. We're not having a sword drill this morning, but we could. Malachi is a tough one to find. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. The last book in the Old Testament. See if you can find Malachi chapter 4. In our series of messages we've entitled Following Jesus, we're attempting to chronologically follow the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw Jesus emerging from obscurity as an adult and preparing for public ministry by handling temptation. This is in Matthew chapter 4. It's also in Luke chapter 4, where we learn just a couple of lessons that we should watch out after spiritual victory. When taking faith of, uh, steps of faith, there will be pushback. And I need to watch out for temptation after spiritual victory. To lean heavily on the word, Jesus gives the example of leaning heavily on the word of God. And then I encourage you last week at the end to go to Jesus. He is our high priest. That was, as the author of Hebrews says, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can go to Jesus in the hour of temptation, in the moment of crisis, spiritually go to the Savior. He did have, if you think about it, it's really interesting. Jesus had the option to sin. Somebody asked me last week, do you think Jesus could have sinned? I think you said in the message he couldn't sin. Well, I think he had the option to sin, but there was no lust in him, no desire to succumb to the temptation. The likelihood, maybe, of, would be the best way to say this, the likelihood of Jesus succumbing to sin was zero. He had no human father. He had no sin nature. He endured temptation to its fullest as an example to us. For him, temptation stayed on the outside. And by the way, there's an important lesson for us. To keep temptation on the outside, what we must do is feed our spirit, not our flesh. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, the more that you feed the flesh, the more that the spiritual man dies or weakens, and the more likely you are to succumb to the lust of the flesh. But the more you feed the spirit, your spiritual man, the less strength your flesh has and the less lust temptation you have coming from within you. So feed the spirit more than the flesh. Now, today's message is actually from the Gospel of John. After the Gospel writers introduce us to John the baptizer, each of them introduces us to Jesus as an adult. And last week, we saw briefly Jesus baptized in the Jordan River and then off to the Judean wilderness for the temptation. At the end of John 1, Jesus is beginning to gather some followers. And we're going to go there in just a couple of minutes and then at the beginning of chapter 2, we find him in Galilee. So if you picked up a map on the back table, they're available for you if you've missed them. This is the same map that we were looking at last week, the traditional area of baptism down there at the bottom on the Jordan River, then in the Judean wilderness, then up north to Nazareth and Cana in the northern region of Israel, referred to as Galilee. Today we're going to see the first incident where others start to recognize that he is no ordinary man. And 
I just want to pause for just a minute and say thank you, uh, musicians, for the music today. Because all of the music, if you were paying attention, points to this truth that Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus was special. Jesus was unique. And I'm really looking forward to meditating on that for a few minutes with you today because he's more special than we realize. To begin today, I want to take you back 400 years, okay? So we want to go back into the Old Testament and set the stage. Here are the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Malachi is a prophet. He's writing to the remnant of Israel that have returned back after exile. His book is the only prophetic book of the Old Testament that ends not with hope, but with a curse. In fact, curse is the last word. Literally, for 400 years, we don't hear from God again. There is silence. This period is referred to as the intertestamental period or the silent years. 400 years we don't hear from God. Why? Well, I want to remind you that the history of Israel to this point has been rocky at best. Okay, let me take you all the way back a little bit further. Let me take you back to the escape from Egypt. They go, it's an 11-day journey, Scripture tells us in Deuteronomy, from their escape in, uh, in Egypt to Sinai, from Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea. 11 days from Sinai to Kadesh. And they go up to Kadesh, and Moses says, all right, let's go in. And they say, well, let's send some spies. And they send the spies and the spies come back and they say, well, it's nice, but there's these big giants and we're afraid that we're going to get killed. So let's not go in. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they die off, not from starvation, but from disobedience. You remember the story, right? When they finally get in, it starts the period of time we know as the time of the judges. And remember what happened during the time of the judges? Every man did what? What was right in his own eyes. Until Israel begged God to send them a king. And we know how that worked out, right? Their kings were rotten for the most part. In fact, after the first three, the nation split. And it was known for intermarrying with unbelievers, idolatry, failure to keep the Sabbath, and eventually exile. Then you have the exile period and the partial returns. And this is where we get Malachi. Okay, so for, for years, for centuries, the, the, it's been an absolute disaster. The city or the nation of Israel has been a complete mess. They have not followed after God. And then Malachi comes and says, God's going to solve this unless or so that he doesn't have to curse everything. And then there's 400 years of silence. Control of the region known as Israel, where the exiles are slowly making their way back in, is changing hands Notably, the Greeks gained control in 333 B.C. This is why in Jesus' day, everybody's speaking Greek. In 63 B.C., the Romans gained control of the region. They're the rulers at the time we read the Gospels. By the time Jesus is born, a descendant of Esau is ruling as acting king in the region. The priesthood is no longer in the family of Aaron. It is full of political corruption. The religious elite are confused and oppressing the people. Things have digressed so far that Israel is really unrecognizable. 
People could barely hear God if he were to speak. What a mess. Then you have the Gospels. The angels coming to Zechariah and coming to Joseph and coming to Mary saying, guess what? God is going to solve the problem. After the account of the birth of Jesus, we're introduced to this man named John the Baptizer. The religious leaders have some questions for John the Baptizer. Most notably, this question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're wandering through the wilderness. You're preaching repentance, the kingdom of God. You're telling people to be baptized. Who do you think you are? And we find this in John chapter 1, verse number 19. Listen to what scripture says. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Now, he knew what they were asking. They weren't asking for an ID. All right. They weren't asking for his name. They wanted to know where do you fit in the big picture? Who are you? We don't we're not used to people preaching and prophesying and doing things like this. What this is this has been un, unheard of for 400 years. Who are you? Verse 20. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed. I am not the Christ. In case you're wondering, I'm not Messiah. I'm not the one that you are looking for. And they asked him then, okay, art thou Elias, Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Then said they unto him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as said the prophet Isaiah. He's been talking. The prophets have been talking about Messiah coming. I am the one that is preparing the way. I'm not Elijah, he says. I'm John. But I come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Do you remember the prophecy given by the angel to John's dad, Zechariah? Here's what it said in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And he, your son that will be born, shall go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah. His job, Zechariah, your son John, his job is to go in the power and the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the one we are looking for. John says, I'm not Elijah. Elijah only comes before Messiah is accepted and Messiah was going to be rejected. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus actually says, John is Elijah if you accept the kingdom. But you're not going to accept it. You're going to reject it. And so he represents Elijah. By the way, if you're a, a Bible student and you like deeper study, this is a great study. Who is Elijah in the Gospels? It's a great study. But here's what I want to get to. And that is that John says, I'm not Elijah and I'm not that prophet. What prophet? What is he talking about there when he says, I'm not that prophet? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses predicts a prophet that is going to come. And Peter preaches about that prophet 
in Acts chapter 3. Here's what he says in Acts chapter 3. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said, this is Deuteronomy chapter 18, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear the prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Here is what... Peter was saying when he's preaching in Acts chapter 3, everything in the Old Testament, all of the prophecies are pointing to one person. And they're pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. They're pointing to Messiah. They're pointing to the one that we're waiting for. John chapter 6 verse 14, men watching the miracles that Jesus did said this, this is of a truth, that prophet. There's no one else this could be. This must be the prophesied one. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2, when John the Baptist had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that should come? Are you the one that we're looking for? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go show John again those things which you do hear and see. Tell him about the miracles. So today... We're going to look at the very first miracle. The first time where Jesus steps out of silence and steps out of obscurity. And after 400 years, he speaks for God. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus, the great prophet, the great Messiah, the promised one, is about to be revealed. And it's going to happen at a most unusual place, a wedding. It's going to happen at a wedding. Now, for individuals, this has already been happening. So if you have your Bibles at John chapter 1, I just want to show you, for individuals, this has already been happening, but not for the greater public. In John chapter 1 and verse number 1, John, the apostle, says that Jesus is God. Now, he had the advantage of retrospection. He was writing this years later, and he had seen Jesus prove over and over again that he was God. But in John chapter 1, we also see John the Baptist in verse number 34. This is the Son of God. Andrew, verse number 41, we have found The Messiah, Philip, verse number 45, we have found him of whom Moses wrote. Verse number 49, Nathanael, thou art the son of God. See, Jesus has not commissioned these men yet as his formal disciples, but all of them have something in common. Here's what they have in common. All of them recognize that Jesus is different. They all recognize that this is God in the flesh, that this is the prophet, and Jesus is about to prove it. Now, all of that really matters. When we get to the end today, I just want to try to bring it all together. That all matters 
to why John, the apostle, the very first thing he tells us about Jesus is the wedding in Cana and turning water into wine. It all matters. Let's get to it. Let me, let me pray for us before we get to it real quick. Lord, would you help us as we go to your word to think clearly about who Jesus is? There was a lot of questions at this time. John the Baptist was asked, who are you? Jesus was asked, who are you? Jesus actually asks his mother in this account, who are you? But I think, Lord, for us, the right question is to ask, who are we? Who, do we believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Are we deepening our relationship with him and letting him change our lives? Would you speak to us from your word as only you can do? Lord, we yield ourselves, my mouth and our ears, to your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and teach us from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a super, super simple passage. I don't want to outline. I don't want to insult your intelligence. This kind of outline will work for almost any message, especially a miracle. But here it is. The passage, the performance, and the point. Okay? There it is. And it's even alliterated, so you can remember it. The passage, the performance, and the point. Let me give you the passage, first of all. We're in John chapter 2, and I want to read to you the first few verses as we hear this account of Jesus turning water into wine. John chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Let's pause there for just a second. Jesus hasn't yet formally gathered disciples yet. So these are just followers, people that are hanging out with Jesus. They're called to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith to you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. That's the passage. Let me walk through the performance of this miracle with you just really quickly, okay? So number one, it says that both Jesus was called and his disciples. One of the guys that was hanging out with Jesus at this time was Nathaniel. This is one of Jesus' earliest followers. We learn in John 21 that Cana was his hometown, so he probably knew this couple that was getting married. Mary was there, Jesus' mother. She was from Nazareth. Nazareth is about five miles away from Cana. Nazareth itself is a small town. Cana is just a village. Mary was likely at the wedding serving, as was her nature. 
Her, his disciples were there because Jesus was probably related to the people being married or they were friends of the family. Almost everyone knew each other or related to each other in some way or another at this time. So they're all gathered together for this wedding. Verse number three. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Now, have you ever wondered why Mary would come to Jesus with this statement? Why did she say this? Well, maybe she was in charge of the kitchen, possibly, and maybe she just saw him first. It's not like wine was optional for them. Wine was the only option. Water in this region was unsafe. Wine was plentiful. So what they did is they used this wine to dilute or they diluted it down with water to to purify the water and to make it drinkable. This is how they used water and wine in these days. It's important for us not to make too much about this in this passage. It's much like us saying we ran out of beverages. The kitchen staff ran out of lemonade and coffee, okay? They just ran out of beverages. And because this event was a huge event, lasting several days, up to seven days, this would have been a huge embarrassment for the family and for those involved in serving. They've run out of wine. So Mary comes to Jesus. Why now? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why would she come to Jesus now? Well, she's probably aware that he's been baptized. She's probably aware that he's gathering followers. His cousin John is getting very vocal about Jesus' credentials as the Lamb of God. She's probably suspected that the time was getting near. Maybe, possibly, she just expected a natural solution. Like, she'd known Jesus now for 30 years Even as a child, developing as a young man, he was always right. He was intelligent and resourceful. He always knew the right thing to do. I was thinking this week, like, Mary probably often thought, what would Jesus do? She probably didn't have a bracelet that said that on there, but she probably often thought, like, what would he do? Like, he's so resourceful. He's so wise. He's always on top of it. He's always so gracious. He's always so kind with people. So perhaps... When they ran out of wine, she had that question, like, hmm, I wonder what Jesus would do in this situation. It makes sense for her to go to him. He's her eldest son, the wisest young man she knows, capable and resourceful. Maybe she expected something supernatural, but maybe she just went to him because she knew he could help. Have you ever thought about this? Like, like you and I have a lot of shortcomings. Can you think? For some of us, it's hard to think about our shortcomings. Think for just a minute about your shortcomings. If you can't think of one, men, ask your wife. She can come up with a few shortcomings for you. But all of us have things that we're not great at, right? Like, for instance, I have terrible penmanship. Not great at it. I am not very artistic. If you ask me to draw something, it's going to be a stick figure, okay? Not very good. I'm a reasonably good cook. I mean, I could... I could survive on my cooking, but not even on the same chart as Mari, okay? Not even close to what some of you ladies can do. There's, some, there's many things in my life I'm just really deficient at. Here's the Son of God. Here's Jesus. Mary has him, she thinks, at her disposal. Jesus, solve this. You do everything right. You never make a mistake. You always know the solution. Jesus, fix this. Maybe she was asking for a miracle. Maybe she was just saying, Jesus, you always do it right. But his response to her is very interesting. What does he say? Woman, what have I to do with thee? 
Mine hour is not yet come. It seems a little disrespectful, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you young people are allowed to call your mom woman? Don't try it, okay? It seems a little disrespectful. It sounds like it in English translations. It's, it's actually a little bit more like saying to her, excuse me, ma'am. What do we have in common? What he was really saying is our relationship is changing. It's not mother and son. It's woman and man. Jesus is saying to Mary. He actually uses the same term on the cross in a very loving way. He says, woman, behold your son. Referring to the apostle John that he was to take care of her. I don't know how many of you have had a, your adult children get married. Anybody? Raise your hand. You've had your adult children get married. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about when I say weddings for the young people, the kids, quote unquote, is fun, right? It's a big party. It's exciting. They're in love. Everything's awesome. For the parents, it's usually traumatic. You know what I'm saying? It was for me anyway. It's traumatic. Why is it traumatic for parents other than the cost? <laughs> Why is it traumatic? Because you know the relationship's changing forever. You know, as soon as that young man, for me a couple weeks ago, as soon as that young man says, I do, to that girl, like the purse strings are cut, which is good, okay? But the dependency is gone forever. The relationship changes forever. And this is really what Jesus was saying. This was not his wedding, but what he was saying to his mom at this wedding is, look, our relationship is changing. Woman, ma'am. You don't get to come to me as mom and tell me what to do. Our relationship is changing. Now, your Catholic friends will have a hard time with this because they would like Mary to have more influence in Jesus' ministry. But Jesus knew the idolatry that would rise out of that way of thinking. And I think Jesus here purposefully is telling us, look, this woman is not God. She is not the co-redemptrix. She is not a mediator. She is not the one who answers your prayers. She is, to Jesus, another woman. And her agenda has nothing to do with his. Here's, here's what he's saying to her. You and I have nothing in common right now. You're serving at a wedding. I'm doing my father's business. We have nothing in common other than we happen to be reasonably close to each other. And so he says to her, my hour is not yet come. By the way, if you're a Bible student and you want a deeper study, that's another phrase that's an interesting study in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus says, this is not my hour. It's an interesting study. I do not do things on the time demands of humans. I'm about my father's business. So Mary then says to the servants in verse 5, whatever he says to you, do that. Okay, she basically brushes him off and she says, "Okay, I'm not talking to you as mom. I'm just basically saying, would you solve this problem, please, sir? And whatever he says, you guys should do. So they fill the water pots, not with drinking water, as you know. These were ceremonial wash pots. And so they had filled these wash pots with water to the brim, filled to the brim. Now, these, these pots, this water was used to ceremonially wash their hands. And you knew this was really important to the Jews before they ate to ceremonially wash their hands. Not like we think of. Like now when you walk into a public restroom, you stand there at a mirror and you look at the sign and it says, you know, give yourself three squirts of soap, put your hands under warm water, rub them together for 20 minutes, rinse them thoroughly down to the elbows, you know, and then don't lick the doorknob on the way out and you'll be safe, Right. 
That's not the way it was back in the first century. In fact, when Holden and I were reminiscing a little bit this last week when we went to Africa a few years ago. On the very first day we were out in the bush, we went to the headman's house for dinner. And we all sat down in the house. Some of you that were there remember this. They had a, a little jug of water that was sort of tepid and not super clean. And they were walking around and pouring it over people's hands. That was it. And you just kind of basically got the big chunks knocked off and did that. And then you ate. It was more ceremonial cleansing than it was actual cleansing. Okay, that's what these water pots were for. It was for them to pour over their hands for ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus turns the water into wine. Now, I just want you to think about what it takes to produce wine. Now, God does this actually all the time. Okay? This is a no, no-brainer for God. This is super easy. He does it all the time. He just usually uses natural means. Seeds from existing grapevines are planted. They grow new vines. Those vines are watered and cared for. And you wait. And what happens is water goes in the bottom of that vine and it goes up into those leaves and into those vines. And the sunlight turns it and does its photosynthesis thing and sugar happens. And all of a sudden you get these little balls of yumminess called grapes, right? God has turned water from the ground into wine. And we harvest them and enjoy them. They're They're crushed, they're strained, they're made into juice. And so Jesus says, I do this all the time, but what I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to do it supernaturally. So Jesus basically says, let there be wine. And there's wine. From Jesus' perspective, not really a big deal. Remember what John said in John 1, 3, just a few verses earlier? All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is like, this is super easy. I make wine all the time. I can do this. It just, at the snap of a finger, let there be wine. It's in this moment that Jesus steps out of obscurity and you know the rest of the story. Here's the prophet, God in the flesh. Okay, so I told you just a few minutes ago, this all really matters. And it matters on the last point of our outline. What's the point? Why would John tell us this story? And why here? Why does God break his silence with this story? What is it all about? Before we get to the point, I want to just talk to you just a little bit about this type of scripture. This type of scripture is called a narrative. A narrative tells an account. It tells a story of something that happened. They're very captivating. They really bring us in because most of us like a good story. Those of you that have a hard time staying awake on Sunday mornings, it's a good story that usually wakes you up, right? This is true for all human beings. We love a good story. And so um, scripture is full of these narratives. They're memorable. They're interesting. They're emotive. They really help us connect. And they should be shared with our children, by the way, not as stories, but as historical accounts of what really happened. But here's the problem with narratives, especially miracle narratives. There's a problem. And here's what it is. We read them and we jump to all kinds of conclusions. We have a tendency to over-moralize biblical narratives. We miss the big picture. And the big picture is to ask this question, why did the author tell this story? What was his point? 
Let me suggest some answers to that question. What was John's point? What was he trying to teach us? Was he trying to teach us that wine tastes better than water? I don't think so. Was he trying to teach us to listen to your mother? No. Or call her woman? No. Was he trying to teach us to go to weddings? No. How about this? Save the best beverage until the end? No, that's not the point either. What's the point? Well, we don't have to guess because John hints at it in verse number 11. He says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples did what? They believed on him. His disciples believed on him. What was John's point? John's point was to show us that this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the creator God, the one that has been silent for 400 years. He's back and he's speaking and he confirms himself with miracles. In fact, throughout the gospel of John, John chooses eight of Jesus' miracles to highlight. Jesus heals and he feeds and he raises the dead and many more. And John gives these proofs or signs that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, why does he choose these eight? Why does he start with this one? John chapter 20, verse number 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. There was a lot of other miracles, John says, I didn't tell you about that are not written in this book, but these were specifically chosen that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing, you might have life through his name. John does what the other evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also do. And that is that they tell us about Jesus and then they call us to faith in Jesus. Here's who he is. You should follow him. You should trust him. You should know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Peter says, Jesus was confirmed among you. He demonstrated his power. Do you believe he is who he said he was? So here's the purpose, I believe, of today's message. Why this passage? Why this message? What should we go from here doing? I think the answer to that question is that we would increase our faith in who Jesus is. That we would increase our belief. Belief in Scripture is about taking the trust that we have in ourselves And putting it in someone else. An unreserved transfer of trust from me to Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is the one the world was waiting for? That's who Jesus is, the prophet. The breaking of God's silence for 400 years. The promised answer to the sin problem. The religious leader said to John the baptizer, Hey, who are you? The crowds that were watching Jesus asked each other, who is this? Jesus asked Mary, who are you in relation to me? But the question that we want to end with today is, who are you? How do you view 
Jesus? How do you view him? This week, as I was studying through this passage, I kept having the same thought recurring over and over again. Jesus is bigger than we think. Jesus is stronger than we think. Jesus is greater than we think. We sing songs about him. We lift him up in worship. We talk big about Jesus. But our thoughts of Jesus are too small. He's God in the flesh. For him to turn water into wine is just a normal day. For us, impossible. For him, he's the miracle-working prophet. So who are you in light of the miracle-working prophet? Let me give you another really profound outline as we finish today. Are you either the saved, the skeptic, or the scaredy cat? Here's John chapter 2, verse 11. I just read it to you. This beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed. Believe in scripture, I've told you before, includes a couple of things. It includes not just putting my trust on Jesus, but it includes turning my back on my sin. I'm not going to live life my way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to make him my goal. In everything I do, it is all about Jesus. I turn my back on my sins and I place my trust in him. Maybe that's not you yet, though. Maybe you're a skeptic. The skeptics John described in John chapter 12, it said this, that many had seen the miracles done. Yet they believed not on him. They watched from a distance. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're a skeptic. You're asking questions, but you're not quite ready to trust Jesus. Lastly, maybe you're one of the scared. In John chapter 12, again, it says that nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were afraid of what others would think. And can I just tell you this morning as we conclude, there's one question that matters. There's one question that matters. It's actually on the wall in our hallway. If you go down the hallway and you walk out the school entrance, right above the door it says this question. It says this, What will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you trust him completely? The the, the idea in scripture of believe is like fully transfer everything onto Jesus so that my relationship with God, I understand, is completely dependent on Jesus Christ. It doesn't depend on who I am. It doesn't depend on where I come from, what my family is, where I go to church. It doesn't depend on any of that. It depends on Jesus Christ alone. Have I come to the place in my life where I put that kind of trust on Jesus Christ and made everything about him? Or am I still a skeptic? Am I still scared of what others think? Can I just tell you this morning, the time is now to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the time is now to fully submit to your relationship with him. He is the prophet, the one that was promised, the, the, the word of God in the flesh. And it is him today that we worship. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for demonstrating in the Gospels his power. We stand in awe today as we just think about this miracle we're all very familiar with. And it seems 
maybe a little bit over-familiar, I ask that you would help us today to again be amazed by the power of Jesus and what it means. The demonstration that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the one that gets to do whatever he wants to do. And Lord, in our lives today, there are some of us, no doubt, in here who have never fully trusted Christ for our salvation. We're still holding on to something. Would you please make this the day of salvation that if there's somebody here like that, that they would trust Jesus Christ, that they would, as your word says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, the majority of us would say, that's my testimony. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus. Would you help us to think bigger thoughts of our Savior? Would you help us to trust him more? Whatever problems we're facing, whatever difficulty we're going through, that we would lean into our relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you help our conversation this morning to encourage somebody to lean into Jesus more as they battle through the difficulties of life this week? Thank you for the opportunity to worship you together. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close in worship, singing about God, the Ancient of Days. Yeah.
The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. 
May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.